Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this message. When we look at Ephesians chapter 6, and I think of all of these facets, and we're in this passage that deals with spiritual warfare, I think it's a good thing for us to be reminded of just what we are encountering as ones who walk with our Lord, and as ones who walk, as ones who have been granted the very presence of God's Spirit and the gift of salvation. Last year, I said, uh, last week, I said, I want to start this year with us at Beth Ariel reflecting on just three things, three priorities that we might remind ourselves of periodically. Let's make this year a year in which we are truly seeking Messiah that we're looking for him in all the various circumstances we might experience, all the different relationships that we might encounter. I said, let's devote ourselves to God's word where we can see Messiah in the greatest of clarity. Four books are devoted to his life. One book, the book of Acts, is devoted to his life lived out among the body of believers. Let's devote ourselves to reading the Gospels and reading the book of Acts that we might get a fuller and more complete glimpse of Messiah so that as we go through the circumstances of our lives, we will look for him and we will follow him. I suggest that we, follow, we look for him in, God, in his word. I suggest that we look for him in prayer. And that we utilize the Lord's Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer, whatever prayer title you want to give it, that Messiah had given to us as a model by which we will pray and seek the Lord. And so remember that the Lord's Prayer is divided in two parts. Speak to the Father about the Father. Our Father who art in heaven, the glorious, majestic, holy God, hallowed, be your name. We want to speak about his person. We want to speak about his program. Thy will be done. We want to speak about his purpose. Thy kingdom come. His program is that his will would be lived out through us in our world. And his purpose is that one day the kingdom would be established. Pray to the Father about the Father. Pray to him about who he is and rejoice in his character. Pray to the Father about his program, that his will might be accomplished here on earth. Pray about his purpose, that his kingdom will come. But let us also remember that 
the Lord's Prayer is a prayer. Not only do we speak to the Father about the Father, but we speak to the Father about His family. Give us, notice the first person plural, give us this day our daily bread. Pray for, to God for provision that he would provide for us. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Pray about his pardon, that we would pardon even as we have been pardoned. Pray for his protection and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We want to seek Messiah through his word, through prayer, and through rest. I say rest so that we can listen to his voice as he speaks to us in the inner recesses of our hearts. I suggested let's make this year not only a year in which we seek Yeshua, but this year where we seek to serve. That we desire to utilize our gifts and our talents and our abilities and our spiritual gifts for the glory of God and for the building up of one another. Let us ask ourselves some hard questions about to what degree am I engaged in helping to move Beth Ariel forward in service to our Lord and to one another. I'd like to just highlight one thing, and that is the need that we have in our administrative office. It's an ongoing administrative need, but up and coming are some major events. You can help Maria a great deal as we get ready for Purim, as we get ready for Passover that usually nets close to 300 people at our Seder. And so we need to keep the administrative cogs, wheels rolling, but we also need to begin to prepare for these special events. If you are free during the day, If you can lend a hand an hour or two somewhere during the week, please see Maria and tell her, I can help. I can do some things. I can take some of the administrative pressure off for you so we can continue to develop a team that will minister or provide for our special events. This year, make it a year in which we seek Messiah. Make it a year in which we seek to serve What can I do for you? Which is the song written by America's prophet, Bob Dylan, right? I think it's on his saved album, you know, What Can I Do For You? If you've never heard that song, oh man, YouTube or wherever it takes, iTunes it, and listen to the words. Lord, you've done all of this for me, he says. What can I do for you? Make this a year in which you're not asking, Lord, what can you do for me? He's already done it all. And there's nothing more that we need ask, although he invites us to ask. But let us ask, Lord, what can I do for you? And then not only ought this to be a year in which we seek Messiah, but let's seek to serve and let's seek to share. Every Shabbat, every service just about, we say it, you are my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Yeshua's last words to us are, you are my witnesses, and to his disciples in the gospel of Matthew, go into all the world and proclaim the good news. 
So periodically, I want to remind us of these three things, basic, but they will transform our lives and transform our congregation. And if we devote ourselves to those three things, you know there's one individual and his emissaries who will be very unhappy with what we are attempting. And that is the evil one who is the enemy of our souls. It is no accident that in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul concludes his letter by reminding them of the evil one who would attempt to work them woe. I don't know if that's grammatically correct, but you get the idea. He concludes the letter by telling us you need to be vigilant in your walk with the Lord because there is one who would seek to destroy what God is doing in your life in one way or another. If he cannot take it from you, he will render those things inoperative and make them ineffectual in your life. Paul has told us in the first five chapters that we are the inheritors of every spiritual blessing, that we are seated in the heavenlies with our Lord, metaphorically speaking, but we are united with our Lord. If there's anything the evil one would want to convince you of, is that is not true. And we hear his words over and over again. You think you're really blessed with all those things? Don't fool yourself. You see your life. You see the challenges that you are in. How can you even begin to think you have all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies? The evil one would want to rob you of the good news that is yours fully and free. In Ephesians, Paul said that God is at work to create a new entity where Jew and Gentile united together in worship and praise. The evil one would want to destroy our love for diversity. He would want to create in our hearts continued racism whereby we don't look at each other as equals, but rather as Jews or as Gentiles. To be sure, we are Jews and we are Gentiles, but we are one in Messiah. The evil one would want to deprecate one over the other. And in some of our congregations, Gentile believers are put on a lower platform than those Jewish believers. I know of a group that gathers together for some conference in which Gentile believers are welcome to come, but they are not welcome to contribute or speak. And I don't get that at all. But the evil one would want us to think that there is some levels of sophistication or some levels of attainment in being Jewish or perhaps in not being Jewish. But the evil one would want to sow seeds of racism where God is taking from both Jew and Gentile and making them united in him. Paul taught, and he said, make every effort, chapter 3 is it, every effort to maintain the unity of the body. The evil one would want to sow seeds of discord. He would want to create a disunity and a disharmony among us. 
Paul has told us that we are to be submissive one to another. He told us of God's purpose in the home, where wives would submit to their husbands, where husbands would love their wives. He has told us that children are to obey their parents and parents are to lovingly care for their children. He's told us how employers are to treat their employees with dignity and respect and the employees are to respond to their employers with hard, devoted work. The evil one would want to break up your marriage. The evil one would want you to be disobedient to your parents. The evil one would want you to be hard on your children. The evil one would want you to be resentful of your employer who has more than you. The evil one would want the employer to think less of those who work for him. And so Paul ends on a note in which he wants to remind us of a very pivotal and important truth. You and I, when we invited the Lord into our lives, we signed up to be engaged in a war. It isn't simply that because we're discouraged, the Lord's going to make us happy. Because we have less, the Lord's going to give us more. We are engaged in a battle. And therefore, we need to put on the whole armor of God. Now, if you look at these verses, Paul emphasizes this reality. Look what he says in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord, in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then." Now, there are a number of things that strike me right off the bat. Notice the word stand. It appears four times in those verses that I had just read. That we are to be ones that are resolute. That we are ones that are determined in this battle. And therefore, we are to stand firm. Face the enemy head on and to move forward in what the Lord has for each and every one of us and what he has for us as a congregation. Do not think that this battle ends and there ever is a truce. It is a battle that is relentless. Look what Paul says. Look at six times he uses the word against. Look what he says. Be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God that you can stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces in heavenly places. Wasn't one against enough? Stand against the evil forces, the authorities, the principalities, the powers. But no, Paul wants us to know the fight continues to the end of our lives. It is against, 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 it is against. Do not think it a strange thing that there are challenges that confront each and every one of us. 
This is to some degree, though maybe not in every instance, but to some degree the workings of evil spirits that would seek to harm and destroy. Paul makes reference to them. Take a look at these words that he uses. He's trying to emphasize that these are strong entities that we must be determined with all of our might, fortitude, courage, in the power of God to stand up to and resist. Notice he says, first of all, take your stand against the devil's schemes. I'll come back to that. But look at this. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. I don't think Paul means to say it's not ever against flesh and blood. He means to say it's not only against flesh and blood. Indeed, we have conflicts with each other. But it's not only conflicts with each other. We have to be wise and realize that ultimately there are evil powers at work that we need to be conscious of. Look how he makes reference to them. He says they are rulers. They are authorities. They are powers of this dark world. They are spiritual forces. These are not lightweights. These are individuals or persons, fallen angelic beings with significant effectiveness. Notice he says, first of all, they are rulers. I don't think that Paul is listing the rankings of these evil spirits under the evil one himself, although that's possible. But when I think of rulers, I think of those that head up nations, rulers of England, Germany, United States, Israel, Is it possible, and I think there's some evidence for this in the Word of God, as you look at the book of Revelation, as you look at the book of Ezekiel, you look at the book of Daniel, that there are angels, fallen angels, that seem to be assigned to various nations and overseeing the rulers of those nations in order to cause them to do that in our world, which would be contrary to God's purposes and God's program. So perhaps these rulers are angelic beings assigned to rulers in our world. He talks about those that are authorities. There are many in our world who have authority but are not rulers. When I think of those with good authority, like a Mother Teresa type person, she's not a ruler but she had great influence and authority. When I think in the past of someone like J. Edgar Hoover, a man who was not a ruler but had great authority in the FBI and in the American government. When you think of people with financial power, the Donald Trumps and others, they are authority figures of one kind or another. And is it possible that there are demonic forces that are assigned to such individuals in order to bring chaos into God's world? It's possible. He speaks about those who are the powers of this dark world. Those that have ability to control and greatly influence. I can't help but think of journalism. The influence that reporters have, that writers have, that movie moguls have, that musicians have, that authors have. They have a way of sort of crafting values in our world in a way that becomes palatable and acceptable, though contrary, perhaps, to what God's intentions and plans and purposes are. 
Now, these forces, and when we look at the evil one, notice what he says. Put on the full armor of God that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Some translations say the devil's wiles. You know, in the book of Genesis, in chapter 3, it says that the serpent who is used by the evil one was the most crafty of all the animals. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says we are not ignorant of the evil one's schemes, plottings. And here Paul says it again. We need to realize that while the evil one is greatly powerful, he appears like a roaring lion seeking whomsoever he may devour, Peter tells us. That he is one who is crafty and scheming and impacts us when we least expect it or anticipate it. I was thinking about when the evil one often attacks. And these are the thoughts that occurred to me. Number one, he often attacks when we, when we first invite the Lord into our lives. That was my experience anyway. And when I knew that the Lord had saved my soul and I felt this sense of arrival that I had entered in to the place where I always was meant to go, it wasn't soon afterwards that these doubts began to fill my mind. The Lord really didn't save. Do you really believe that kind of stuff that you're hearing about? Do you really think that simply by a prayer that you're saved for all of eternity? And the doubts began to creep in. He is crafty. Sometimes the, the evil one appears at the time we are most successful. I was thinking about this with regard to Peter. You remember that moment when he was speaking with Messiah in front of all the disciples and Yeshua asked, who do men say that I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, at a pinnacle of spiritual discernment and understanding, he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And to hear Messiah say, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven, blessed are you, Peter. And in the very next sentence, Messiah says, I'm going to my death. And, you, and Peter says, far be it from you. And in the very next line, Yeshua says, get behind me, Satan. Sometimes at the height of our successes, the evil one is there to cause our downfall. He is crafty, and so we need to be on our guard. He comes to us at moments of great strength, like Peter, but also times of great weakness. You know it when you've experienced physical maladies, emotional maladies, struggles of an internal sort when you are weakened and often physically or spiritually or emotionally. And the evil one comes, if God really loved you, he would heal you. If God really cared about you, he would take this away from you. Can't help but think of Job and all of the struggles that he came and his quote-unquote friends that come alongside of him. Curse God and die. You must have sinned in some way that God would do this to you. And God wasn't doing it at all. It was the evil one's work from be beginning to end. He is crafty and his schemes are involved. And he comes in ways we least expect him to come. 
Sometimes he comes like a roaring lion. We see him, we know he's at work, and we do our utmost to resist him. But sometimes, Paul says, he comes as an angel of light. And so Rob and I were talking the other day, and I don't know how we got on this subject, but we were talking about individuals that get up in the pulpit or class or whatever, and they say, here's a brand new revelation that God has showed me and revealed to me. And so Rob was saying, you mean like since 2,000 years that Messiah has come, 5,000 years since the scripture was written, say, and you came up with a brand new thing that was never thought about before? Be leery of people with special insights because the evil one comes as an angel of light to deceive and lead astray. Be careful of your friends. He comes as a friend. I can't help but think of Adam and Eve. When the evil one came to Eve, he came as a friend. I've got some good advice for you. I just want to help you. God did not say that if you eat of this, you will die. I'm telling you, listen, if you eat of it, you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. He didn't come as a roaring lion. He didn't come as an angel of light. He came as a friend who could be trusted. We live in a very challenging world. The world is fallen. Messiah tells us, in this world you will have tribulation, stirred up often by the evil one. Not only are we in a fallen world, we are fallen ourselves. And if that wasn't bad enough, we have a fallen being who wants to do nothing else but to destroy. As Messiah said, he was a murderer from the beginning and a liar. And so Paul says there is only one way to combat our mortal enemy. Put on the whole armor of God. He has two commands. Look at verse 10. The first is, be strong. The second is, put on. So there's that sort of combination, that synergism between God's working and our determination to join him in the battle. We have to stand. And we have to put on. But we have to stand not in our own might, his might. It reminds me of Michael the archangel when doing battle with the enemy over the body of Moses. He didn't say, you know, Satan, I am as powerful, if not more so than you. He said, the Lord rebuke you. And Michael, Gabriel, perhaps two of the most powerful angels amongst God's pantheon of angelic beings. But it's the Lord who rebukes you. We are to put on and stand up, but we are to put on the might of God. We are to put on the armor of God. Now, here's an interesting thing that I recently learned, not had recently revealed. It's been revealed before, but recently learned. I oftentimes read this passage which said, put on the whole armor of God, meaning put on that which God supplies us with in order to engage the battle. 
But that is not what Paul means. He doesn't mean put on those things God is providing you with, although they are the things God's providing with you with. He's saying put on the armor that God puts on. I thought this was rather remarkable when I began to read these passages. But you know, God is pictured as putting on armor in the scripture. And when Paul says, put on the armor of God, I couldn't help but think of David, who Saul said, put on my armor against Goliath. Now, unfortunately, Saul's armor, though it must have been rather significant, was too big for David. The amazing thing about God's armor, it's too big for all of us too. But God has a way of enabling his armor to fit each and every one of us perfectly. So he says, put on God's armor. Now, how do I know that? Let me just show you three passages very quickly. We're going to spend some time in this section, so we'll come back. But look at, uh, I mean, in the weeks ahead. But look at Romans, uh, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 11. Again, we read the passage when we light the candles, signifying the fullness of the Spirit of God resting upon Messiah. And so in chapter 11, verse 5, 4 and 5, it says, With righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will, die, he will give decisions for the poor. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. Look at this. Righteousness will be his belt faithfulness, the sash around his waist. Paul's going to say, put on the belt of truth, the belt of righteousness. Put on the armor of God. Put on the belt that Messiah puts on, which is a belt of truth, a belt of righteousness. That's not the only passage. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 52. In Isaiah 52... I believe it's like verse 7-ish or so. Yes, verse 7. He says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace and bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, Your God reigns. Notice he speaks of have your feet, you know, covered with the sandals or shoes of the, of the gospel. And he speaks of proclaiming And this is what we are to do, but this is what God himself proclaims. Look at Isaiah chapter 59. This is kind of a neat passage. I think it's chapter 59. This is a section in which it speaks of Israel's sin, but then of her restoration. And look at the end of verse 15. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him. And his own righteousness sustained him. Look what God does. He puts on righteousness as his breastplate. Paul will speak of the breastplate of righteousness. He puts on the helmet of salvation. And Paul will speak of having our helmets of salvation. When he says, put on the armor of God, he's not saying, put on that which God supplies. He means, here's God's armor, and God's giving us his armor to put on, 
to do battle with the enemy as well. In the coming weeks, we want to look at those pieces. But for this morning, I wanted to remind us we are in a battle. And we have a foe who is significant. He is not the counterpart of God. He is significant. Look how he's described. He's described as one who schemes. But look at those who are in league with him. They are ones who are um, rulers, authorities, powers, and dark forces of evil. And he oversees them to some degree. These are powerful forces. The evil one is not the counterpart to God, however. Perhaps Michael is the counterpart to the evil one, but not God. Remember, the evil one is a created being, like all other created beings, but God is not. God is all-powerful, but the evil one is not. The evil one can only do what God permits him to do. The book of Job is rather interesting in this sight because when Satan says, look, if you take all these things away, he will curse you. The Lord says you can do that, but you cannot harm him. Not unless he gives permission later to do harm to Job. Is Satan able to do that? So his power is restrained. And it is limited only to that which God permits him to do. Not like God, who is omnipotent and all-powerful. The evil one is not all-knowing like God is. God knows everything. He knows what was before, during, and after. He knows what is possible, what is probable, what is thought about, and what is not thought about. (laughs) He knows everything that there is. He knows every possible contingency, every possible possibility. (laughs) He knows anything that is knowable. He knows it all. But not so for the evil one. He's limited in his understanding. And therefore, when he thought Messiah was being brought to his demise, he was, in another sense, brought to his very glory as he provided salvation. The evil one is not everywhere. In fact, in the scripture, there's only six or seven individuals that the evil one directly, personally affronts. He confronts Eve, but he doesn't confront Adam. He confronts David, but none of the other kings that we read of. He confronts Judas and enters Judas. He confronts Peter. He confronts Sapphira, but not Ananias in the book of Acts. So he doesn't confront everyone because he's not everywhere. But God is everywhere. The book of Job is interesting because when the angels are presented before Job, the evil one is among them. And God says, so Satan, where have you been? And in the King James, Satan says, I've been to and fro over the earth. I remember a pastor saying years and years ago, when the evil one is to, he's not fro. And when he's fro, he's not to. He can only be to and fro, but he can't be to fro, you know. (laughs) But God can. Wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in your midst. The Lord said, I will never leave you, 
nor forsake you. So while he's a significant foe, to be sure, he's not one that cannot be dealt with in the power of God and in the armor of God, which he grants to us to use. So how do we deal with the evil one? We'll talk more about this, but let me just give you a couple of thoughts. Number one, the evil one must be confronted with the word of God. That's how Messiah confronted him. It is written, it is written, it is written. When he was tempted and he said, turn the stones to bread, it is written. You will not tempt the Lord your God. When he said, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, it is written. You will worship the Lord and serve him alone. When he said, throw yourself down that you might be born up by the angels, he said, it is written, you will serve the Lord and only him. The word of God, Paul will say, is the sword of the spirit. And it is to be used to vanquish the enemy. It isn't enough to just quote scripture. One must live it as well. When, Paul, when Messiah responded, he didn't just quote scripture at him. He was doing what scripture had called him and all of us to do. The word of God. The second thing I think of is James's statement. Submit yourself to God, resist the evil one, and he will flee. You cannot resist him if you're not submitted to God. We have to be cognizant of the evil one and his schemes and the weaponry God supplies. But most significantly, we must be submitted to the living God. And if we are submitted to him, then we will be empowered to resist the evil one. And in resisting the evil one, the promise is he will flee. So we want to devote ourselves to God's word. We want to devote ourselves to being submitted and obedient to him. And as we look at the remainder of the book of, uh, section of Ephesians, we'll look at these parts. Let me close by simply saying this. When Paul talks about the armor of God, God's armor that he gives to us, what he's talking about is Messiah himself. He ultimately is that armor. And that's why seeking Yeshua is so critical, not just in the coming year, but throughout the course of our lives. Just take a look at this as I close. He says, put on the full armor of God, verse 13. He says, with that, the armor put on the belt of truth. Well, who is the truth? Yeshua said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The belt of truth is nothing less than Messiah himself. Look what he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30 says, he is our righteousness. He is our redemption. He is our reconciliation. What is the righteousness, this breastplate of righteousness? It is Messiah himself. He tells us that we are to have our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. What is the gospel? It is 
the message of Messiah. It is him and what he has done for us by his death, burial, and resurrection. Look at Mark chapter 1. The gospel of Yeshua, the Messiah, is how he starts. So what is this gospel? It's not merely a message. It is him who has come for us. It is a gospel of peace. He is Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace. Look what else he says. This shield of faith. If you look at Galatians chapter 2, I'm going to say around verse 20. The shield of faith is faith in Messiah and in what he's provided for us. What is the shield of faith? It is Messiah himself. And then he tells us to take on the helmet of salvation. What is salvation? It is Messiah who's been applied to our lives. He is our salvation. And then he tells us, take on the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Well, there's the written Word, which speaks of Messiah. And there's the living Word, who is with God and was God and is God and has taken on human form at a given point in time. What or who is the Word of God? It is the Messiah himself. And thus we are to pray in the Spirit. Who is the Spirit? It is the Spirit of Messiah, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. The armor of God is Messiah himself. And no one, no angelic being, no matter how great, can stand against our Messiah and our Savior. We are in a battle. Stand and put on Messiah. For he will be the one who will be our strength. He will be our victory. And he will ultimately be our salvation and redemption. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for these words. Help us, Lord, to be courageous as you call Joshua to be courageous and to devote ourselves to do all that is written in your word. Bring those truths to mind that we might do them and not merely do them but rejoice in them and find delight in them. And as we engage the battle, may we realize that our battle is not merely or only against flesh and blood, but there are spiritual forces of great power that you have called us to stand against. And by your mighty power and through your grace, we can stand and we can put on your very own armor that fits us perfectly, each and every one. For your armor is none other than Messiah. Help us, Lord, to apply your word. It is written, it is written, it is written when the evil one would seek to harm us. Help us, Lord, to be submissive to you. For when we are submissive, we will be strengthened to resist. And when we resist, 
the evil one will flee. Father, we are in need of your power and your strength. And we look forward to your purpose for us in this coming year. Help us to seek Messiah, to seek to serve, and to seek to share our faith with the lost around us. If we do, the battle will intensify. But so will our resolve. And so will our trust in Messiah be manifest as well. So we give you praise for this, for we pray in Messiah's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.